definitely we treated hypothetical projects like real ones. But as students, I feel we should have the freedom to design without consequences because that's where innovation happens. This is episode number five of the Arkyan podcast with Takbir Fatima. Hey guys, welcome to the Ark Gyan podcast after a very long time. My name is Manish Paul Simon and I'm the host for this show. Today we have with us a young and upcoming architect from Hyderabad, Takbir Fatima. She heads a firm called Design Aware and she has won various awards from all around the world for her innovative work. She's also a TEDx speaker. She's also passionate about design research, digital prototyping and computation. She has trained in tailoring and carpentry as well. She aims to work on socially relevant projects alongside mainstream architecture. Takbir was named Emerging Architect of the Year 2016 by Grohe NDTV Design and Architecture Awards and Telangana Young Architect 2016 by the Indian Institute of Architects. Now this episode is going to be packed with a lot of great information and advice for young architects and students and you will get to listen to the various experiences Takbir has had as an architect. Now without further ado we have with us Takbir Fatima. Let us talk about your background and history. So mm-hmm. were you always that kid who wanted to become an architect while growing up? Um growing up I didn't well initially I didn't really know about architecture as a profession but I did know that I like to make things especially with uh, paper or card my grandfather used to give me riddles and puzzles to solve so I really like to solve mm-hmm. puzzles which I still do and I also used to sketch floor plans from memory and design spaces um I drew my first floor plan when I was 6 of course I didn't know it was a plan okay. at the time <laughs> and uh, i was also um my grandmother was an art teacher so you know she taught me a lot about art and i knew that i liked art i uh, later got to know about architecture as a profession when i was about 9 or 10 uh when i met architect anvaziz who's a prominent architect in hyderabad that's when i got to know that you know there is this profession which um allows me to do everything that i want to do that i like to do mm-hmm. which is like which combines craft mathematics problem solving and writing and i wanted to do what uh, he was doing so that's when i got to know that um, i wanted to be an architect right and um, i grew up in saudi arabia but my parents are from hyderabad okay and i'd spent some time uh, here on and off during vacations so i wanted to move to india because this is where i felt that i belonged and um, i wanted to study architecture in hyderabad because it has uh, such a rich history and built heritage um i'd say it's one of the best places to study architecture just by being here you know just okay. by climbing right. and sitting on top of the golconda fort and looking down okay. on the city you learn so much so you did your schooling in saudi and then you came to yeah. hyderabad to do your architecture yeah so you finished your uh, bachelor's from csiit school of architecture planning yeah. second but and then you went on to do mrk in one of the best colleges in the world called uh, aa so can you elaborate yeah. more about your architectural education 
Um, I think compared to um, the way other fields are taught uh, in India, architecture seems to be very hands-on and practical. Mm-hmm. We're taught to uh, view every hypothetical design problem as seriously as we view a live project. And we learn to solve a design problem in many layers from spatial planning to budget mm-hmm. to structure, human behavior, and environmental concerns. But only when I started uh, looking at work from other colleges around the world online did I realize that the way that we're taught architecture, there's something amiss uh, in the way that you know uh, we're taught in India. At, at once, it's not practical enough and also too practical. Right. Uh, so, and I also realized that five years is just not even enough to scratch the surface of this uh, discipline, which is mm. very intense and vast. So I always thought that I would start my own practice right out of college. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the last couple of years of undergrad, I was working part-time at Studio Made in Hyderabad, which was at the time it was very new. It was just uh, set up and we were the first employees there. Um, Architect uh, Madhusudan Chalasani, who who is the principal architect of Made, Mm. he uh, became my mentor and I have to credit him for the direction that I've taken after school. You know, rather than diving headfirst into into the field uh, and you know into practice, he taught us about slowness mm. and the importance of taking pause and thinking. Which is when I decided to learn. Uh, decided that I needed to learn a lot more. Right. And learning is insatiable. I would love to go back to school even today. Okay, so that's when you decided that you wanted to do masters and. Yeah. So take us through this journey, like how you applied and got into one of the best colleges. And what is the course again that you uh, applied for? Yeah, um, I studied MARC, uh, Architecture and Urbanism, which is also known as the Design Research Lab. Okay. So I um, I had applied to a couple of other places as well, but um, I found that this uh, this program was really kind of radical and different in the way that it's taught. And... Um, also, uh, it's not very um, rigid and kind of, you know, it, it was quite different from the way that we were taught here. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to go there and sort of, you know, I like the experimental approach that they have. Because uh, here, I mean, the kind of differences that you can see uh, between India and, and the way that we were taught in my school mm-hmm. is that we were too practical and that we were constantly told that radical ideas and designs are not feasible or they're not structurally possible. Right. Um, or too expensive or wasteful and we're kind of made to feel a little guilty for doing something uh, that might be expensive living in India. We definitely we treated hypothetical projects like real ones but as students I feel we should have the freedom to design without consequences mm-hmm. because that's where innovation happens. You know, why can't we ignore budget constraints for a minute? Why can't we ignore building codes? I mean, so many professionals ignore those in practice anyway. So why can't we ignore the fact that something is not currently happening in India? And why can't we ignore gravity? So, you know, why can't we forget for a minute that we must design buildings and instead design DNA or circuits or machines or systems um, or even, you know, universes? Why can't we assume that certain conditions are, you know, why can't we assume certain conditions that are ideal or utopian? So you're saying architecture these days is not just about architecture, but it's a wide array of things which yes, comes into picture. Definitely. Okay. 
and that's how it should be yeah. so as a student at least uh, you know it's the, the best thing about being a student of design is that you have this freedom without the consequence yeah absolutely and also um, another thing that I found that was missing was that uh, we're not hands-on enough in making you know physical and digital study models in different materials scales and forms to mm-hmm. you know uh, to understand everything from materiality to structure to light quality so these at least in my school in those days uh, these were not given the due weightage but why do you feel that was missing in our curriculum compared to the ones abroad i think our curriculum may not be such a big problem because the curriculum doesn't have to be you know it's quite open-ended so there are very few things that you need to fulfill um i think it's the the way that we that we're programmed to think okay right so what we have this is what i like to call the single solution syndrome so we are taught to think that there's only one correct answer or one approach or one you know right mm-hmm. way of doing something and everything else is wrong which is not true so uh, that i feel that's the problem and that's why uh, the design process and the idea of doing something which you you don't even know where it's going that was not encouraged so much uh, and that was that was the stark difference um between my undergrad studies and uh, my you know arc uh, mrc studies because um at the drl i was uh, the design research lab i was able to experience studio culture mm-hmm. um in which you know you you use physical models as a very important part of the process mm-hmm. and the act of making physical models in various materials and scales is not just representative of, or communicative because you know design is an ongoing process the process doesn't end with the final year final jury or you know uh, or even built structure yeah. it's an exploratory uh, process which is uh, and models help us understand massing special configuration mm-hmm. scale and it's really uh, integral part of the studio experience so this kind of studio culture is what is there at the design research lab um i'll tell you a little bit about the program the program is sort of an experimental approach to design and teaching okay it's like a lab where we're always testing stuff so it's not exactly your uh, typical architectural projects and uh working out a design scheme and all that no um to begin with i mean we don't really know where this research is going to go so it's design research so uh, it's a series of experiments mm-hmm. and neither do our tutors know where it's going to go okay <laughs> and you know they're comfortable with that so um usually the studio is like um it, it, the course is structured in such a way that there's this higher agenda that continues over a period of 3 years right and um when we were there we were part of proto design 3.0 uh which actually focuses on um prototypical uh, design systems which are context free and which are free of the site and within within this great uh, greater umbrella there are other studios which are a bit more focused and more specific mm-hmm. so i was in a studio called uh, machinic control taught by Martha Malay Alimani and Yeroon Van Amijir and Yeroon is currently uh, he teaches the design and make MR program at the AA which uh, was not there before so it's just started and um, so our studio agenda was to explore new ways of digital fabrication of systems mm-hmm. for on-site deployment 
at the end of the day you will be making architecture of course so you will have a tangible product in the end of the course you would have something um i would say not a tangible product but you would speculate how this you would have a system a design system and you would speculate how this could be applied okay scenarios so you also handled a lot of computational work which was on rhino and grasshopper and all that yeah so um our it was more not so focused on the software aspect of things um, our project was more uh kind of you know physical and um, right, material right. driven mm-hmm. but um also digital fabrication was a very important part of this uh, studio and it was um it was pretty new at the time you know uh, digital fabrication was not as ubiquitous as it is today so i was in a team uh, of four punam riddhi federica and myself and we were called automatter because we were automating matter or programming matter so our research uh, involved the use of vacuum uh, to you know deploy architectural systems so uh, after a series of and this was not how it began we had a series of different exper- uh, experiments with different materials mm-hmm. so after a whole series of experiments we proposed a system that was lightweight and temporal using egg crates oh nice so what's really peculiar about the way that um, objects behave in vacuum is that they exhibit properties that are very different from their inherent properties in air okay so uh suppose you you have a membrane which is airtight mm. and you put you know different kinds of objects in it and then you um seal the membrane and you vacuum it mm-hmm. so the shape and the form and the material of those different objects um makes them behave in different ways and makes them create you know different forms which have um lots of different properties which are not the same as when they are you know outside mm. in air mm-hmm. so discrete objects um in the absence of air these different objects can adhere to one another uh, flexible materials become rigid and structural lightweight materials become heavy so under vacuum you can have um, a very rigid and strong structure and then you introduce air and it suddenly collapses and becomes flat hmm interesting so because of this quality the implications of of our system were really exciting because it's a system that doesn't require cement or glue or screws uh, to hold together mm-hmm. it only requires vacuum so the absence of air and it can be erected and dismantled and reused it's completely dry construction so it can be reused again and again in different another place or another time right so um we vacuumed and we tested many different materials in this airtight membrane and among these were egg crates which gave the most interesting results because egg crates have this inherent uh, tapered geometry mm-hmm. and that provides directionality and curvature under vacuum so you can actually predict this curvature and you can program it oh wow okay and uh, and we started uh, in, you know um introducing control points so we put these ping pong balls in the crate cavities and those acted as control points so at different places where the ping pong balls are present or absent you you can see the changes in the form and and of course the uh, the rigidity or the structural uh, quality of it also changes so that's how we were able to control the you know the final um outcome and we were able to get different kinds of uh, sections and different kinds of behaviors out of the system nice so 
so this was like your thesis project is it yeah okay and do you have a video or something which we can share to our listeners yeah yeah so i think i can put that up because it sounds really interesting especially with the Thanks. egg crates and all that yeah it's really interesting okay so when did you decide to uh, i i think you told me that you were working <coughs> on your firm which is design aware when you were studying mr right yeah so uh, how did this inception start about uh so i was really uh, interested in this uh, idea of open ended design research and also the drl itself um is structured in such a way that it's like an it's like a virtual network mm-hmm. you know and um, and i really like that idea uh, as well as the new technologies and fabrication you know digital fabrication methods that were coming up at that time i felt had a lot of potential for architecture and design uh, in terms of form and performance and you know behavior right so i was uh, actually spending the winter in london and winters in london are really harsh and unpredictable yeah, absolutely yeah. so everything shuts down on top of that uh, at that time there was an ash cloud over iceland due to which many of the flights were canceled and i was stuck in london oh, right, right. so i spent all my free time at the digital prototyping lab uh, in the aa basement and i was making all kinds of things just just experimenting uh, with digital fabrication and uh, the drl has its own lab but it's always full so i would sneak downstairs and work <laughs> on okay. uh, anything else that i felt like designing so i experimented with the equipment uh, and the different materials um so i designed a series of um, puzzles and i fabricated them oh nice uh, you know trying to figure out through reverse engineering how they would be made uh, i also did a line of wearables which are inspired by architecture by um, structural systems machine uh, machine parts and nature so that's where designer actually uh, began to take form and it's not a coincidence that it sounds like designer wear <laughs> because it started with wearables and uh, and and i also designed lighting furniture and other you know lifestyle lifestyle accessories which were digitally fabricated in your course was were there any constraints like how in there's these time constraints and i think in colleges like a they let you in and out you can come experiment and go right yeah they don't let you out oh yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> so actually uh, ours was a 16 month program so and we were working in teams and it was it's a very very intensive uh, you know demanding program and we just kept telling ourselves that it's 16 months mm-hmm. and we need to it doesn't matter if we're we don't sleep for 16 months mm-hmm. so um we were in the studio from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. oh wow um you know all days of the week including Sunday. saturdays and sundays okay. so we were there you know perpetually in the studio so um very different from you know a, a longer term bachelor's program which is uh, five years long so yeah you were talking about design aware during your time and yeah so um i started design aware in my head and then um i was in a hurry to kind of get it on the ground so i moved to hyderabad right after my masters okay so you didn't search for a job is it in london no i i wanted to get started okay somehow. okay and i wanted the firm to be in hyderabad um so i began to you know i thought i'm i am on the way to realize my dream of starting my own firm but initially it was 
it turned out to be a nightmare okay. because no one I knew had uh, started their own business. There's not a single soul in my family except my uncle, uh, my mama, who was into business. So in the beginning, without any projects or source of income or an office or a team, it was just merely speculation. And we sit around discussing ideas. Mm. So after burning my fingers on a couple of small projects, I realized that something uh, huge is missing. I needed to focus, uh, you know, more on developing my entrepreneurship skill set. Right. It was severely lacking because they never teach you in architecture school how running a business is also a big part of how you can succeed as an architect. So it's not just, you know, dreaming up designs and then trying to um, detail them and realize them and execute them. It's a lot of dealing with people, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of networking, presentation skills, communication skills, uh, managing time, resources and money, marketing. And you have to wear so many hats that you're always juggling and switching between these different kinds of uh, roles. Yes. I think we get into all those aspects only after we uh, start a firm or, you know, yes. we start uh, something new is when <laughs> we get, get exposed to such uh, it's like there's so much more than just architecture when you start a firm. Yeah. And even when you're starting, you're like, uh, do I start, do I get a project first and then start the firm or do I start the firm and then look for projects? Yeah. So, um, so when there's no work, you need to know how to generate work. Right. So, um, fortunately, um, since I live in Hyderabad, I'm surrounded by techies. So at that time, startup culture was just gaining a foothold all over the world. Okay. And it still is. Mm -hmm. So I, I applied to this program called the Startup Leadership Program, which is an international peer-to-peer -peer learning program for business leaders. Mm -hmm. And I was selected. And um, every other weekend, we had sessions like seminars, discussions uh, with people who are, you know, other people uh, in the program were also starting their own firms. Okay. They're, they could be from other backgrounds, not uh, necessarily design or architecture related. Many of them were from tech backgrounds. Um, so every other week we would be uh, having these seminars, we would be having activities and assignments. And, uh, and then every, uh, throughout the, you know, I learned how to, how to run a business step by step throughout the week, I would be in design aware, practically applying these, uh, you know, newly learned skills in real life. So they, I was, it's a really nice program where you can actually, you don't, you're not learning theoretically, you're learning practically or taking those uh, learnings from the weekend and applying it during the week through your business, to your business. So, and at the same time, um, entrepreneurship is like a very lonely process of just groping in the dark and you don't know where you're going. You don't have colleagues, you don't have mm -hmm, a boss. Yeah to guide you, especially when you don't have a co-founder, you're doing it alone. So you need to look for mentors and peers who are in the same situation as you so that you can exchange views and learn from each other's experiences right. and, and each other's mistakes. So this is what the SLP really helped me with. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's other people who are in the same boat as you, or there are people who have accomplished something and then you, you can just, it's a network. So you got in touch with all these people, is it? Yes. And you can, you can just call them at 3 a.m. and they'll be there for you and they'll, you know, sit and discuss okay. uh, what problem you're facing and help you solve it. 
And uh, another problem is that when you're when you're trying to start something new and you're doing something that is new and exciting, a lot of people try to live vicariously through you. So right. people who have no experience and who aren't really risking anything or risking it all, they, they try to give you all sorts of advice. But the thing is that they're not qualified. Yeah. You need to seek out people who have already done what you aim to do and learn from the successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's great advice. Yes. So I, I learned a lot. I'm still learning, of course. And now we have a team with uh, varied skill sets and perspectives. Um, my sister, Abir, who's an interior designer, joined uh, Designer after she graduated, which took a while because she's 10 years younger than me. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was also joined by two of my closest friends who are architects, Haima, who's in Di- Dallas, and uh, Asna, who has set up the Dubai chapter of Designer. Oh, nice. Okay. So before we get into some of your interesting projects, tell us about your first project. Uh, How did you land your first project and what was it like working on your first project? Um, How I landed the project was that I learned a lot about marketing and, you know, especially social media marketing. So apart from the SLP, I was um, uh, kind of reading a lot of articles online and listening to podcasts and trying to figure out all the ways of doing things. So um, there was a presence that was established online. Uh, and then, you know, that's how people uh, kind of got to know us. Okay. Um, I mean, I was, I was alone at the time. So, uh, so you created your Facebook page or Instagram page yeah. and, and the website. And so the, the website, website was okay. there since, uh, since the DRL days. All oh, right. And then I kept adding to it. So, yeah, so that's how most, uh, people approach us. So that that's how this um, client approached us as well. So this was an educational um, trust hmm. that was running a charity school. Um, it's called, uh, I mean, we call it Hilltop School because it didn't have a name then. Okay. It's called Bright Horizon Academy now. And uh, it's a charity school for children from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, in the Golconda area. Oh, nice. And it's located inside the Golconda Fort in Hyderabad. So the school... Um, before you know before we got involved the school had been run out of this large makeshift shed Mm -hmm. for about four or five years and then uh, they raised enough funds for a proper school building and that's when they approached us to design it okay so this project was riddled with uh, many challenges the the site was extremely difficult and rocky Mm -hmm. uh, because it's in inside the golconda fort which is actually on a hill golconda actually means a shepherd's hill Oh wow! Okay. So, uh, and so then, Golconda and comes this, in the uh, center of Hyderabad, is it? Where, where exactly? Not really. Okay. Um, yeah, not really. It's towards the northern side, but yeah, it's the old city, one of the old parts. Of okay. And it's about uh, it's over eight hundred years old. The fort. So the fort has two sets of walls. It has these outer walls and inner walls. So the inner walls is where where the actual fort is, but the outer walls contain this um, settlement, mm. which is hundreds of years old, mm-hmm. and it's like a very dense, um, low-rise settlement with courtyard houses, uh, and all of them share walls. So the entire area has you know um, these narrow winding lanes, which are really steep. Mm-hmm. And our our site was also on this, uh, you know, the site itself had a lot of uh, rocks on it. And because it's a charity school, the budget was very tight. The space was also kind of tight. 
and um, and on top of that, it's in the heritage zone because it's inside the fort. Oh, yeah, right. So we had to deal with heritage zone regulations, and uh, and it comes under army jurisdiction. Okay. So we had all of these challenges set out in front, you know, in front of us before even beginning the project. Wow. Um, so the entire site is covered with sheetrock, which is about uh, I think over 250 million years old. So we wanted to preserve this rock. Mm-hmm. And there were these existing trees that we wanted to preserve. And there was a, a pretty big playground, uh, which is a very rare open space in such a tight Dense, urban context. Yeah. So we wanted to preserve that as well. Uh, so the the school, so the site itself is divided into two parts. And there is a 20-foot drop in between. So it's like a cliff okay. in between the two parts of the site. So that's quite a project um, you got, you know, for your first project and all that. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a dream project, yeah, absolutely. actually. absolutely. So that's what we dream about when we're students, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so what we did was we confined the school to one side of the site hmm. uh, because we wanted to preserve that playground. Okay. And um, and so the school is built on the side of the cliff, and every level touches the ground at different points. Okay. So you can enter from the ground floor as well as the second floor. Oh, nice. And so on the topmost level, it's uh, almost nothing is built up there. So the playground is really spacious and breezy. And there are two uh, atriums, which we were sort of inspired by the courtyard uh, houses around. Yes. So we introduced these courtyard sort of atriums and they bring in uh, fresh air and daylight to the center of the building. And then, you know, uh, all the spaces are completely naturally ventilated naturally lit. Oh, nice. So there's very low energy consumption. Even though they have electricity, they never use um, the lights and the fans. And uh, also because it's a charity school, we had to not only think about the cost of construction, but the cost of maintenance mm-hmm. over the you know, future period of uh, use. So uh, the walls of the school have been kept completely bare. Um, so it's just plastered okay. um, and it's exposed. So this reduces the long-term maintenance of the building. Right. It doesn't require too much cleaning and you don't have to repaint it every year because as soon as you paint walls, they get dirty. So, yeah. um, And we had to, all of these um, sort of decisions that we made, we had to make a lot of the design decisions on the site while the construction was happening, oh, wow. okay. uh, which was really stressful and scary. And and also convincing the client at the same time, so <laughs> right. uh, it took it was quite challenging, and so the entire school is quite bare. And then we introduced uh, pops of color just to brighten up the uh, the spaces. Right. So there's uh, bright colors in the staircase, the railings, the doors, windows, mm-hmm. and the skylight. So it's like sort of balances it out. It's also like a it green building. Yes, it's um, the school has been uh, rated silver as a green building by the Indian Green, green building, building Council. Oh, nice. Um, I mean, we always knew it was a green building. It was designed to be a low energy, low maintenance, sustainable building. And uh, it uses, you know, every space is naturally lit and naturally ventilated. But this recognition adds credibility to that. Right. But how was, uh, you, you spoke that it was a charity project. So tell us more about mm-hmm. how you got the funding and all that. Yeah, uh, it, it was a charity project and we did it uh, on a non-profit basis. Okay. But uh, while it was being constructed, the funds were really limited and they were halting. So there was no free flow of funds. So every few, you know, it was built in a phase-wise manner. 
uh, it couldn't be built all at once. Okay. Uh, so, and three classrooms are still under construction. Oh yeah. Okay. So what, in order to, um, we, we didn't really aim at raising funds because the funds were raised by the educational trust, but they were planning to scrap the library mm -hmm. because it was almost like a luxury for them. Right. But uh, reading is the fundamental thing that takes you to the next level. Absolutely. It's essential for a charity school. It's necessary because these children don't have access to books at home. Mm -hmm. So we started this social media campaign called Make Progress Possible, uh, initially to collect children's, you know, used books. Okay. And we invited all our friends to, uh, you know, contribute and donate their old books. Uh, we received uh, over 200 books the first time and, and also some educational toys. And we, so we started to receive these books and we populated the library, but then it snowballed into this crowdsourced uh, fundraising campaign in which people started to volunteer and they wanted to contribute to the building as well as the running of the school. Uh, so many people have uh, donated um, a lot of funds to provide midday meals, textbooks, sports equipment, Oh, that's brilliant. So people can still contribute so, uh, for this, Yes, right? so we, what we did was, because there was so much of interest generated, we started to run this campaign on a yearly basis. Okay. Uh, we do it every Ramadan, which is the month for charity. Right. So, but a lot of people approach us throughout the year from all over the world. Oh, wanting wow, to okay. So from time to time, um, not just the school, but we also raise funds for other community building initiatives. And uh, that's there on our website. If, they, if somebody wants to do yeah, sure. a project, I, I that put is this up in the show notes so people can mm -hmm. get to it and start contributing. Sure. All right. And uh, this project got you a lot of awards as well, right? Yeah. So we it's won a few awards, including the A Design Award, uh, twenty eighteen, um, and then in the uh, Berger Architecture Ideas three point at 48 okay we won the platinum for the public building category oh wow nice. and it's also been featured in a few publications arc daily and oh that's brilliant matter as well awesome i'll put all those links in the show notes all right guys so that was part one of this two-part series of a serendipitous journey with takbir fatima i hope you guys learned a ton from this episode on the next episode Takbir talks about Fractal's workshop, future of architecture, and more of her experience working as an architect in India. If you guys love this episode, please give us a like and subscribe on whichever podcast platform you guys are listening from, be it iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher. And also guys, check out our website which is arcgyan.com and don't forget to subscribe to the mailing list because you need updates as and when we released Arcgyan episodes. The show notes of this episode will be available on akhgyan.com slash 05 where I put up all the info that Takbir had talked about in this episode. Alright guys, thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.